Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish amb ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't, don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of God. Good morning, church, again. Um, for those of you who have not met, like I said earlier, my name is Joel. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at New Eden Church and one of the elders, uh, specifically the pastor for preaching and oversight. And so it is a joy uh, to just be a part of what God is doing and just be one of the members of New Eden Church as well. And so thank you guys for hanging out with us this morning. Um, so if you are visiting, this is not normal that I have a whiteboard up here. Uh, this is a little unique. So it's serving as... Uh, prop for my opening illustration, and we're going to use it in a little bit. So I figured that was enough reason to bring it out. So how many of you guys in here enjoy pros and cons list? How many of you guys are like fans of them? All right, cool. So I'm not typically one to like whiteboard pros and cons, um, but I think I have like a running list of pros and cons in my head constantly for like the million decisions that life might bring my way. I'm always trying to See, see, if we're honest, the pros and cons list is really us trying to predict the future. And so that's literally what I'm trying to do with every decision. I'm like, if we make one decision uh, and when it goes this way, then these are all the positive things that are going to happen and all the negative things that are going to happen. And if we make this decision over here, I need a pros and cons list for this. And we're trying to predict the future. But the problem is, as you guys know, we've done all the homework. We've tried to make really wise choices sometimes by making this list. And then we found ourselves uh, not panicking out, right? We found something where we tried to do the best we could, but at the end of the day, we're really not in as much control as we think we are. James is going to talk about wisdom today, and I think he's going to uh, point out for us, well, I know he's going to, and I think we'll all understand by the end of it, that pros and cons lists, they can be helpful. We can try to make really wise choices, but wisdom as defined by James 
starts with the foundation that we understand we are not in control. We have to have the humility to understand that it's more wise to follow the spirit, to follow the wisdom of God as revealed for us in the scriptures than it is to make a simple pros and cons list and figure out the situations we have in life. James doesn't leave many rooms for maybes. He's essentially gonna give us a pros and cons list about wisdom. But he's gonna say all earthly wisdom is always full of cons. There are no positives when it comes to earthly wisdom. And all wisdom from above or godly wisdom is all positives, even if it doesn't look like it in the here and now. James wants us to see that godly wisdom or wisdom from above, as he calls it, is the only way to true righteousness and peace. So as you see, we are continuing our series through the book of James. We are quite a ways into the series now. Today, we're gonna be in James chapter three, verse 13. You just heard it read all the way through chapter four, verse 10. So we're covering um, quite a section, but I think you'll see how it all fits together by the end of our time. Uh, we're in the CSB version of the Bible. If you wanna follow along, we'll also have the verses on the screen for you as well. Um, if you've been paying attention through James, you know that he's not pulling any punches, right? Uh, we said at the very beginning of the series, and I think maybe we're all in agreement now that no matter who you are, no matter what you struggle with or don't struggle with, at some point throughout this book, you will be challenged. And if you don't think you were, then go back and listen to last week's sermon again on the tongue, and it will challenge you. This week's will do the same. We're all being challenged by this book. James is giving us a picture of what a community of people with what he calls a live faith, a faith that is active. Um, he gives us a picture of what that will look like. And he often contrasts it with the uh, community of dead faith, uh, where people don't have faith that is real. And so the, the goal of James, and he's really doing that uh, today, is he's trying to bring us to a place of humility where we can receive what he has for us. And this week, he's gonna specifically talk to us about wisdom. So apparently there were some in the churches that James is writing to that purported themselves as wise, but James wants to make sure that their definition of wisdom is the same as God's definition of wisdom. And so he's gonna do this to define wisdom for us accurately. Uh, we're gonna look at three main things that James has as we work our way through the text. Um, the first one is gonna be earthly wisdom versus godly wisdom. So James will, uh, verses chapter three, verse 13 through 18, he's just gonna give us a comparison of the two types of wisdom we can have. And then in verses four, one through about four and five, He's going to dive deeper into the source of earthly wisdom. Where does it come from? How do we find ourselves being led by earthly wisdom? And then the last thing we're gonna see is the source of godly wisdom, what I've entitled it. He calls it wisdom from above, right? Um, and so we're gonna see where does godly wisdom come from and how do we access that for lack of a better word, okay? So let's start by looking at earthly wisdom versus godly wisdom. James starts by framing the conversation with this question that he answers himself. Look again at verse 13. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? So who's this wise person? Who, what, how do we define that? He says, by his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. 
So right away, I don't know what you guys think of when you think of someone really wise and smart, but typically I think of someone who has a lot of knowledge about a lot of things. Um, They've maybe read a lot of book summaries. I don't know if you've seen those apps where it's like I can avoid reading the whole book and I get this like 10 minute summary and I feel smart because I I can talk about it now, right? Um, I do that, so that's why I'm talking about it. Um, Maybe they can confidently argue their logical position and they're really good with rhetoric. You're like, man, that's smart. I never thought of that before. Um, maybe they're able to confidently say things that cause other people to think. Um, maybe we think of wise people as someone who not only like knows principles, but is really good at just applying them. Like they just live by the book. They follow the wisdom to a T. And that's primarily what we think of when we think of wise people. We tend to think of wisdom as primarily being in the headpiece, the knowledge piece of who we are. But James begins to redefine wisdom in a way that's more holistic. He helps us see that wisdom is also about our posture and our actions, not only our head, but our heart and our hands. It's more about that than it is simply knowledge. He defines this by saying, he's at his wise, they're full of good conduct and that the works they do are showered in humility or this gentleness that comes from wisdom. Do you think of a wise person as gentle? This good conduct he talks about. Uh, One commentator uh, translated this as one with a lovely life. The truly wise one is marked by a lovely life that does works of love and gentleness, not simply by knowing a lot of things. So that's how he introduces and frames this conversation. And then he goes on to compare earthly wisdom versus godly wisdom. So he's gonna do this really systematically. This is where we're gonna pull out the whiteboard and do a little bit of work. I'm gonna erase this pros and cons, and we're going to do what James does in verses um, 14 through 18. He's going to um, compare these two things of wisdom. So we're going to start first by looking at earthly wisdom. Um, So you can put James 3, 14 to 16 up there. I'm just going to leave this up there on the screen for you guys uh, so you can see those verses. And what he's going to do, let me make my little chart here. This is going to be a little bit teachy, a lot more teachy than normal, um, but in the end, I think it'll help us kind of understand this. So he's going to talk about the two different types of wisdom. He's gonna talk about the source of earthly and godly wisdom, where they come from. He's also gonna talk about the evidences of each. So how do we know which type of wisdom we're being led by? The evidences. And then lastly, he's going to talk about the fruit. Where does this type of wisdom lead? And so he's gonna work our way through the two types of wisdom. I'm gonna get a different color and be cool here. Um, So we can do this. So we're going to talk first about what he calls earthly wisdom, or sometimes I call it false wisdom. It is wisdom of this age. It is not true wisdom. So if you actually were going to skip ahead of verse 15, he says, such wisdom, so earthly wisdom, does not come down from above, but is, he says, earthly which just means it is from around us. It is thinking of this age. He says, unspiritual. So that just means sensual or from within, we'll say. Um, And then he goes pretty far and says demonic, right? So those two, I'm like, okay, cool, I can handle that. But it's like demonic. All right, James, you're serious about this, right? So it's from around us, it's from within us, and it's from below, right, as we would say. So that's where the source of earthly wisdom comes from. And then the next thing he says, what are two evidences of this? In verse 14, he says, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above. So, so bitter envy 
is an evidence that you are being led or I am being led or we are being led by wisdom that is earthly, okay? He also says selfish ambition. So bitter envy would be this comparison game we love to do in our culture, right? Um, Where we're envious of other people or maybe we're envious of the things that other people have. Selfish ambition would be, um, we love this, actually we pride pride ourselves on this in America, right? Like ambition, you know, and um, ambition's not bad, but selfish ambition is at the expense of other people. It is trying to become whatever it is that makes you happy. And so that is my aim. That's what I want. I don't care who it hurts in the process. I don't, what co- I don't care what commitments I've made. I can give those up. You know, like this idea of self-actualization. I'm, I'm for self-awareness and emotional awareness. Like I'm pro those things. But this idea that we're just kind of like defining who we want to be and whatever it is, forget the commitments we've made and other things that we have. Okay. So that would be selfish ambition. That is the evidence that we are being led by Uh, earthly wisdom, no moral compass. Um, And so, yeah, then the fruit of this, he says in verse 16, where there is envy and selfish ambition. So what does this lead to? There is disorder and every evil practice. So disorder and every evil, some translations say vile practice. So what happens is when we are led by wisdom of this age, we take good things in order and turn it to disorder and chaos. This is taking what God did in creation and flipping it on its head. When God took chaos, the earth was without form and void and he brought order and he said, birds go here and and people go here and this is what people are created to do and spread my glory. Instead, it's chaotic. Um, There's no moral compass led by the selfish swims of each person leading to chaos, both in our own hearts and in the community around us. So this is earthly wisdom. James wants to make it crystal clear. This is super like systematic. He's comparing the two. And so let's look at godly wisdom, verses 17 through 18. He says, but the wisdom from above, okay? And you can throw it, yeah, there we go. So those verses will stay up there so you can see those while we go through this. So godly wisdom, or I would say true wisdom, Okay, its source, right away he tells us, is from above um, or from God, right? So it is a gift. You remember, uh, James 1, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It's not something you can just conjure up. It is a gift that comes from a good father. And then he gives this long list of evidences, okay? He says in verse uh, 17, the wisdom from above is pure. So that means it has right motives, okay? He says it is peace-loving. That means it is about making peace, not chaos. Um, The opposite of that, he says it is gentle. It's not harsh. It's not angry. Um, It is compliant. Uh, Some translations say easy to be entreated. It is approachable. It's reasonable. It's not stuck in its way, so to speak. Um, It is full of mercy and good fruit. So full of mercy and full of good fruit. Okay, so it is a life that is marked by mercy, by good deeds. It is unwavering. Uh, This means single-mindedness. It means stable. Um, It can also mean without partiality, as some translations say. Um, Basically, it means that no matter uh, who you're engaging with, you you, you don't treat people uh, partially, uh, like we saw earlier with prejudice, um, we saw earlier in James. And then the last thing he says is without pretense. So that would be... um, that means there's no hypocrisy. It's, there's my bad writing coming. All right, without pretense. So it's without hypocrisy. It's sincere, it's real. So this is a snapshot of the person who has been given godly wisdom as a gift from above. And then he goes on to say that the fruit of that 
is a harvest of righteousness. This translation says fruit of righteousness. So it's this kind of cultivating garden language, uh, fruit of righteousness that's, he says, sown in peace, listen to this language, by those who cultivate or make peace. So you see this language of peace and righteousness and you start seeing these two things compared against each other. One is disorder, every evil practice. The other is righteousness and there's peace and shalom. What's interesting about this is, is this is not something you can just conjure up. These are gifts. It reminds us of the fruit of the spirit. Uh, the women are going through Galatians Bible study, looking at the fruit of the spirit, very similar list. And the way James talks about wisdom is very similar to the way Paul talks about the spirit. Okay. And so this um, is what, what happens is as we have wisdom from above, and this is the evidence of it, the fruit, um, this language would have reminded the hearers of the garden where there was this place of shalom and peace. They were commanded to spread this glory to the ends of the earth. And so what James is saying that as we are led by wisdom from above, we partake with God in bringing goodness and righteousness and a better word for our culture might be justice, both in our own lives, in our relationships and in the community around us. So this is the snapshot of earthly wisdom versus godly wisdom and where each leads. James wants to explore each of these further. And so let's look at the source of earthly wisdom a little bit closer. Okay, let's, let's look at this. James 4 verse 1, he asked this other question. He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? So all this stuff that's happening right here, this bitter envy, this disorder, this stuff, where is this coming from? And if you asked me, and we took a poll in here and said, why do you get angry sometimes? Why are there fights, whether it be in your family, in your relationships, at your job? Where does this come from? If you ask me that, I'm going to be very much like Adam and say, well, God, it's the wife you gave me. It's her fault, right? It's the kids you gave me, God. If they would just obey, I wouldn't get mad, right? Um, it's the roommate you gave me, God. It's the boss you gave me, God. It's the situation you put me in, God. But James says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? James says the reason for our fighting and quarreling and our lack of making peace actually lies within our own hearts. The reason is, is that there are passions and pleasures that are at war within us. They are fighting for our time, our energy, our affections, our loves. See, the problem is not just that we do things wrongly. It's not just saying, hey, stop this. He wants to get to the source that we don't only do things wrongly, we love things wrongly. Passions and pleasures are not bad, but when we try to find them and satisfy them in lesser earthly things, it leads to destruction and chaos. James shares that within each of us is this desire to build our own kingdom. We love to be on the throne. We're at the center of our world. And so we're all clamoring and fighting to be on our own throne. And in the end, what happens is we are destroying others. We leave behind destruction and chaos. As we are so focused on what I want and what I need, we ignore the needs of those around us and we move from even ignoring them. James is gonna get to where we become an active piece in oppressing and bringing pain to other people. 
James says in verse two and three, look at it in chapter four. He says, you desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. So we're clamoring for these things that we think we want. He says, we're doing all this. We still can't get it. He says, you fight and wage war. You don't have because you don't ask. Do you see the difference between the wisdom from below that is striving, trying to get and obtain at any cost versus just ask for the wisdom from above? And he says, when you finally ask, you don't receive it because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James wants to get to the root of the matter to help us be led to humility that we are not innocent in this. We are not, that's why we can't just turn this into some exercise where we're like, huh, all right, cool. Earthly wisdom, godly wisdom. Sounds good, let's go home. We have to get to the heart of the matter that we are a part of the problem. We saw in chapter one, we are enticed by our own desire and that desire leads to sin. And when sin is birthed forth, it brings forth death. That's why James uses the word murder. Whether there was, uh, commentators don't know if there was actual murder taking place, it's actually irrelevant. Jesus said that if you hate your brother or sister, you have murder in your heart. We need to understand the weight of this. See, the wisdom of this age seeks its own way and it doesn't care about who it hurts in the process. It reminds us of the garden, right? When Adam and Eve were in shalom with God, perfect union with God and the tempter came and tempted them instead of staying in submission to God's good rule and reign and saying, your way is best. You are the one who calls good, good and defines what that is and calls evil, evil and defines that. And we're staying in submission to that. But instead they are tempted. What was the temptation of the fruit? Desire to make one wise. This was a temptation to define wisdom disconnected from God. It wasn't just to know good and evil. That's a piece of it. That word also means to determine good and evil. That I now get to say, no, that's good because I like it or that's evil because I don't. And it's this redefining of good and evil and it leads to this chaos where every man does what is right in their own eyes. Wisdom apart from God will always lead to chaos and death. And so now instead of spreading shalom or peace, which was the command given to humans to cultivate peace, instead of that, they are now spreading chaos and disorder. Like read the scriptures and it's no different today. The world still struggles with this. Both in like big, like communal systemic ways we can see this through some injustices that take place in our world or maybe like wars and fightings, we're seeing that now. Genocide, the killing of innocent people because no one's willing to make peace. But it's not just out there. It's in our homes. It's in our lives. Spouses fighting, kids bullying each other at school, social media arguments, use sports, like whatever it is. What world is it for you? Our lives and communities are more characterized by bitter envy, selfish ambition, disorder, and evil practices than by a harvest of peace, justice, and righteousness. And we look at this and we finally say, let's turn to God. God, fix my kingdom I built and messed up. And we turn to him only asking with wrong motives. As if he's a cosmic genie who'll just put a stamp on whatever it is we want to do. Here's my plans, God. 
Can you approve them for me? Can you put a rubber stamp on them and make them turn out just like I want them to do? Here's the house I want. Here's the job I want. Here's the marriage I want. Or here's the marriage I don't want. Here's the kids I want or the kids I don't want. I want you to make this all happen for me. And then we get upset when God doesn't come through as if it's his fault. God is not a cosmic genie. He's king. In verse four, James digs even deeper to the heart of the matter. Why are we full of selfishness and envy in our hearts? Why are we full of arrogance and pride instead of humility? Look at what he says in verse four. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Strong language here. This isn't just don't be friends with unbelievers. That's not what he's saying at all. This idea of friendship is intimate. It is uniting yourself to the world. He says the root problem with your lack of love towards others and the way you're treating people and fighting is, is your, your lack of love ultimately for God. We struggle with the second commandment because we struggle with the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Don't have divided loyalties. And he draws from the imagery of Israel. Constantly, Israel was cheating on God with other gods and adding other gods to God and trying to mix them. And they're called adulteresses all the time in the Old Testament. We too, under the new covenant of grace, have been united to Christ, his bride. You understand this language of intimacy and union with Christ? And when we want to, to cheat on God and break away from that and go run over here and run out and, and, and join ourselves to pleasures of this age, we are adulterers. We are spiritually immoral and unfaithful. And our hearts are really good at this. As Tim Keller said, they are idol factories constantly creating these things that we, we think will satisfy us. They can be people, they can be um, things and ideas, they can be many things, even good things. But we put it on the throne and say, if, if we just had this, whatever it is for you, what is it that you have to have to make you okay? If I just had this salary level, my world would be okay. If this was just over the season of my life, then I would be fine. But none of those things fulfill us. And we're cheating on God. We're making ourselves an enemy of God. Notice it doesn't say God makes himself an enemy of us. And we are, we are literally trying to push God off the throne and either place ourselves on it or somebody else or some idea or something. And we are making ourselves an enemy of God. As we intimately join ourselves to the way of selfishness, individualism, pride, and arrogance. We are setting ourselves at odds with the way of Jesus, the way of gentleness, humility, sacrificial love. Why is this such a big deal, guys? Like, like if it was just like, hey guys, here's some good ideas, go be wise, like, it's so empty. Why is it a big deal? Why does it matter? Look at verse five. Why is James so forceful in the language of adulterers? He says, do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? There's two types of envy. There's bitter envy of humans that is for our own good and our own selfishness. And there's a godly envy that God has for us. 
James is drawing again on the story of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures, where we're told of this holy and righteous jealousy or envy that God has for his people. This is not like God's envious in the sense like we are, like, oh, I wish I had that, or I just really want that to make me okay. Like God's, God is complete in and of himself. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. This is God envying for us as a groom envies for his bride's whole devotion. This only makes sense. This is God saying, I created you. I formed you in your mother's womb and I breathe into you the breath of life and created you in my image. And you are only fully human when you are united to me. You are only fully who I created you to be when you are singularly focused on me. And so because I love you, I want every part of you. I don't want you to just say, here, God, you can have this piece of my life, but don't touch this over here. I really wanted this. God, I trust you with this, but I don't really trust you with this. I think I can do a better job. I'm gonna withhold that piece over here. The spirit envies intensely and says, I want every part of you because I love you and I'm for your good. This is a beautiful truth, but it's also extremely weighty because maybe you could raise your hand, but I know I couldn't raise my hand and say that my full devotion is to Christ alone. I can't stand here and say that this is my life. If you think it is, ask my wife and kids. And I'm not joking with that. Like that's, that's, this is not the character of my life most of the time. Like my life is more characterized by this half the time. Like, I'm just being honest. Like, if the book of James ended here and said, all right, I told you all about the tongue, which James is starting to wrap up now. He's like told us everything, most of the things we need to say. He's got some things for the rich next week, I guess he's gonna get to. But most of it, like, here, guys, I've told you what you, you know. So, so just go get busy. You got all the info. You got the knowledge. You got the facts. Let me know how it goes. We'd all be in trouble. But there is hope. And this is where we see our last point, the source of godly wisdom. In the midst of our hopelessness and despair, from James who has come at these people, I mean, he's come at them hard. He just called you adulterers. Like He's coming at you. Look at what he says in verse six. But he gives greater grace. this sweet refrain, these five words, but he gives greater grace. After all has been said, where we found ourselves realizing that we, we do misuse our tongue, we do find ourselves using false earthly wisdom and devouring each other and fighting, he gives more grace for the oppressed, for the oppressor, for the broken, for the fool, for the distant, there is grace. And I love that he just says he gives greater grace. Like it should be like greater than what, James? <laughs> like, can you just say, like technically it should be he gives great grace. He says greater, like greater than what? Greater than anything. Like, like write it up, write up your sin account, whatever it is, there is more grace. Romans 5.20, the law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied or where sin abounded, grace multiplied even more. Church, this is good news. 
for, for fools like us. Grace is not just barely covering your sin. It's not like it's just trying to like patch it up and make it look good, like put a Band-Aid on it for a little bit, right? Or just throw some paint over it. I don't even feel like cleaning the wall. I'm just gonna paint over it. That's like what I do. It doesn't barely patch it up. Grace defeats your sin. It's not even close. Like if you, you know, use sports where they have this mercy rule, it's so bad, everyone's like, let's just quit the game. Like it's so embarrassing at this point, we're done. Running clock, just call it. Like that's what we're talking about. Grace is absolutely stamping out sin. Grace abounds. Grace is greater. This is crazy, guys. But isn't it just like God to give grace to the outcast, the cheater, the broken, the marginalized, the one who is absolutely buried underneath the weight of the sin that reads James and says, what is this? I can't do this. The reason even this is a grace to you because it gets you to the point where you can receive grace. Because the person that gets grace is the one who knows they need it. That's what he says in, in, in verse six B. He says, uh, he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I want you to think about this. You're like, wait, who is God resisting? He's resisting the person who would never come to him anyways. The proud person doesn't come to God. They don't need God. They've got it figured out. That's why Jesus can say, I didn't come for those who had it all together. I came for the sick. We got to remember this, guys. And I know we're in the South and like we think we hear the gospel all the time. Like I was talking to someone this week and they're like, hey, I, I really want to come to church so I can get cleaned up and get saved and baptized. And I'm like, no, like you're missing it. That's not how it works. You don't get cleaned up so you can get saved and baptized. Like you come broken as you are. That's where Jesus receives us. And if you don't think you need the grace of God, you've not really been listening. Because these demands, not only these, but all of James we've seen, these, these demands of the kingdom citizen, rightly understood, will absolutely produce a lifestyle of humility that is necessary to constantly run to God. You can't do this on your own. It's a gift. The truly wise one is not the one who has it all figured out. It's the one who knows he doesn't or she doesn't and constantly says, I need your wisdom. I can't do this. See, all along we've been talking about wisdom as this posture, this picture of someone. And I wanna to submit to you that wisdom is not primarily a posture. It is first and foremost a person. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, all, all, all the Torah was pointing to Jesus as the true Torah. All, all the books of wisdom were pointing to Jesus as true wisdom. All this idea of peace is pointing to Jesus as the prince of peace, the one who says, peace I leave with you. This is what I'm here for. This is why it can't just be like, like you can't just stop this and start this without the good news of the gospel. Jesus was the one who lived the life marked by good works and humility. Unselfish, pure, peaceable, approachable, full of mercy and good fruits, gentle, impartial, and sincere, sowing the seeds of righteousness and peace in the earth. 
and he perfectly submits himself to the father. The, the temptations that Adam and Eve failed at in the garden, Jesus remains faithful when the tempter comes, says, I'll give you everything, all the passions and pleasures of this age. You can have it all. And he says, no. He stays faithful, submits to his father. Didn't count equality with God as something he had to have, but emptied himself, came and dwelt among us, drew near to a broken, fractured humanity, and became obedient even unto death on a cross where he bore the effects of our earthly wisdom. This is all the chaos all, all the, the wrath of God towards sin, towards disorder, the things that we should have received, this is where our sin leads to chaos and destruction. He says, I'll take that on myself and bear that in the cross and in exchange, I will give you my righteousness and my peace. And he trusts his father, humbles himself and says, I'll let God exalt me at the right time. And he did. Three days later, he gets back up out of the grave. He ascends to the right hand of the father where he rules and reigns forever. And this is good news for fools like us. Because of the gospel, what I just defined, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, because of that good news, there is hope for you to come to the end of yourself and say, I have nothing. And he says, that's exactly where you need to be. I will give you my life. And when we begin to get this, guys, when this truth begins to sink in our bones, we actually are transformed. These things actually can happen. I know I said like my life isn't characterized by this, but there, there are moments and times where it's like, holy crap, God is actually working and making me more patient with my kids. This is crazy. A year ago, I would have lost my crap and I didn't. This is crazy. See, sanctification. And then we realize the only hope, look at verses seven through 10. This becomes the, the natural response. Therefore, verse seven, if all of this is true, submit to God, obviously, duh, right? Resist the devil. He's not for you. Resist him and he'll flee from you. And this comparison, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. First of all, you can't draw near to God without him first drawing near to us. And he has in the gospel, in Christ, became flesh. But then the difference, like one bit of resistance from the devil, he's gone. He's not for you. Like you can try to resist God and he's like after you and he's not just running away and upset. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. All this is just showing us what true repentance looks like. When we see that, that this is our life, we don't just say, Meh, no big deal. No, like, we don't just like laugh about it. We're like, we're mourning and weeping. Say, God, like, this is not what I want. And with trembling and in awe, it's crazy that, that God will, will draw near to us. Do you guys understand that? The creator of the universe that we slapped in the face over and over, ran uncheated on him, will still draw near to us. Guys, that's crazy. So when we find ourselves in arrogance and no humility, we weep and we mourn. And if we're not there, we're like, God, bring me there. Break me so you can bind me. Tear me down so you can build me up. And I love this, even this humble yourself before the Lord. 
This is not something you have to go figure out and do over in the corner so you finally get it right and then come back. No, God's got you. He's there the whole time. So we find ourselves like the prodigal son saying, I'm in the freaking pig slop. This is a mess. I tried. And look at the chaos and disorder. And we come back home, just let me be your servant. I, I just, I just, I'll work, I'll earn it. And he's like, no, that's not how it works. I'm going to throw out the red carpet. We're going to celebrate because my son was lost and now he's found. So we're going to throw a party and celebrate because it's all a gift anyways. And so we can quit the striving and clamoring and earning for a place of honor. You can't do it anyways. All you do is hurt yourself and others. And instead, we just ask. I don't know how often I find myself saying, God, I, I need this. I can't, I can't make this happen. I need wisdom from above. There is so much grace for the one who knows they need grace. There's so much wisdom for the one who knows they need wisdom. The truly wise one in the kingdom of God is the one who knows they need help, who sees his own lack of wisdom and has a humble life. And then we entrust it to the spirit and say, hey, look, it's your fruit. I can't, I can't make this happen. Like this is growth that we're talking about. So spirit, you do the work, produce in me your fruit. And we lean on Jesus as our only hope because he was the truly wise one. And he will give you not only his wisdom, but himself. Let's pray.